Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Each week, we read through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, ideally seven at a time. Our aim is to learn what it was that God gave to this man so that he could preach the Lord Jesus Christ so effectively for such a length of time during his life. If you want to know more, you can visit mediagratii.org where you can sign up to a newsletter where each week not only do you get a, a, an outline of what we're reading, but also you get a, a PDF of the featured sermon. If you're enjoying the podcast and if it's been a blessing to you, then please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference, I'm told, and we do appreciate it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, where you can get daily quotes so that you can see what's going on. Now, this week we're reading sermons 633 to 639, and it's that last sermon, 639, that is our featured sermon. It's simply entitled Zealots, and it comes from Luke chapter 6 and verse 15, Simon called Zelotes, or Simon called the Zealot and it was preached on the 16th of July, 1865, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. Now, Spurgeon begins by telling us that this Simon had apparently two surnames in Scripture, but both mean the same thing. His point is that uh, somewhere along the line, Simon got this nickname or this title, that he was Simon the Zealot. Spurgeon suggests that he probably had this name before he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the delightful thing is that after conversion, he was as much a zealot for God as he may have been for whatever else he was beforehand. I should be glad then, says the preacher, if many among us would earn the same title by so living that men would call them zealots or even fanatics, for this is so sleepy an age concerning religious things that to be called fanatic nowadays is one of the highest honours a man can have conferred upon him. May we so act and live that we might truthfully wear the title of Christian zealots. With that introduction in mind, Spurgeon's going to go in two simple directions. First of all, a description of the unconverted zealot, and then secondly, a few remarks upon the Christian zealot. And that reflects his suggestion that Simon was zealous before he was a Christian, and retained his zeal, although it was newly directed and refreshed and established in Christ after his conversion. So then, the unconverted zealot. Zeal frequently expends itself on other things than religion. You'll find many zealots not religious in any sense of the word, and Spurgeon gives us some examples. There are political zealots. There are scientific zealots. There are business zealots. These are the people who, whether it's politics or science or business or whatever else it may be, that's what they're devoting their lives to. The, uh, the, the party in power, that's the be-all and the end-all. And they know everything that there is to know, or at least enough that they think they need to know about what's going on. Uh, and he talks about the Whigs and the Tories. Today in England, we talk about uh, conservatives or Labour, the Liberal Democrats in America, it might be the Republicans or the Democrats. Uh, other parts of the world, 
There'd be political parties, presidential candidates, prime ministers, whatever it may be, or science, uh, the uh, appetite for discovery or the uh, exploration to find something that no one's found before, or the business zealots, the people who give themselves day after day, week after week, month after month, every hour God sends to building up their business and making themselves rich. Spurgeon's point, the world doesn't cry out against zeal in business, science or politics. No, it's admired there. But the moment you bring it into the court of the Lord's house, then straight away they hold up their hands with astonishment or open their mouths with blasphemy, for men cannot endure that we should make eternal things real and spend our strength for them. They would have us reserve our energies for the matters in which they take so deep an interest. In other words, if you're religious, uh, if you're zealous rather for religion, true religion, if you're committed to the things of God, men will think that you are mad while you're allowed to be zealous for almost anything else. So Spurgeon isn't saying you shouldn't be zealous in anything else, for zeal is essential to success. What he does want is that Christians would be at least as zealous about their Christianity as the worldly men are about the things of the world, half as earnest and half as ambitious as they are to maintain and increase the kingdom of their Lord and Master. Then the unconverted zealot, should his zeal expend itself in some way upon religion, is generally exceedingly boastful. So if there's any religion in the mind or life of the zealot, it's very full of himself. Unconverted men, when full of zeal, are almost all Jehus. They must have some admiring eye. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. The clap of approbation, the, the round of applause is essential to the life and vigour of their earnestness. They only strive when people are watching. Not so the true Christian. He is as zealous for his master when he stands alone or in the midst of derision as in the time when religion is honourable. The unconverted zealot is generally an ignorant zealot. They have a zeal for God, said Paul about his own countrymen, but not according to knowledge. The Pharisees were very fanatical. Ignorant of God's righteousness, they went about to establish their own because they did not understand that about which they should be truly zealous. And, says Spurgeon, there's much ignorant zeal around today, probably more to be found among the professors of false doctrine than the followers of the truth. Oh, brothers, he says, shun an ignorant zeal, but at the same time labour to blend zeal with your knowledge, lest your knowledge lacking force should cease to be operative in the land. So you need to know what you believe and you need to serve accordingly. Seek to be right. Get an understanding of the truth as God has revealed it, or otherwise all your zeal will be but wild fire, which will do mischief rather than good. Then, the zeal of unconverted men is generally partial. We might say today it's, it's selective or it's biased. It may be a zeal for something good, but not for everything that is good. So it's very focused. It, there are certain things that are left out, certain things that uh, they just don't care about. And so it's vital that a Christian be zealous for everything that concerns God. The, the hypocrite he can uh, strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
but the true Christian understands the value of all things. So may we be earnest men of God, says the preacher, but I pray that we may be zealous for all truth. We must count no truth to be despicable, but take the whole word of God as far as the Spirit of God shall reveal it unto us, and stand up for it in its entirety and completeness, and not be willing that the very least of Christ's commandments should be neglected or despised. We cannot then afford to be selective. We cannot pick and choose with regard to the truth about which we show zeal. Then, says Spurgeon, an unconverted zealot is generally a persecutor if he's able to be so. Paul was a very zealous man, and how he loved then to show his zeal for God as he imagined it in his ignorance by persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the, the zealot who does not truly know Christ always wants everybody to be under the thumb. It's a uh, a graceless zealot is a is a persecutor. Contend earnestly for the truth, says Spurgeon, zealously indeed. But let the only fire you use be love, and the only sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think we could say today that an unconverted zealot is a typically a, a bully and an attacker and an aggressor. This ungraceful picture of the zealot is, however, not complete unless we remark that often his aims are sinister. There's a, there's a desire to bring down the true servants of Jesus Christ, a slandering, uh, as there was in Corinth concerning the Apostle Paul. Beware then of a zeal for lifting up of yourself, says Spurgeon. If we preach Christ only with a view to get ourselves honoured by it, we prostitute the sacred things of God and are guilty of that very sin which was accursed in Belshazzar when he took the golden cups of the sanctuary to drink therefrom to his own delights. That's a potent word to, to any preacher, especially those who get something of an opportunity or a platform for preaching. Are you exalting Christ or self? Zeal must be pure, says Spurgeon, a man who's preaching to thousands of people and his reputation is worldwide. He's speaking to himself. It may be fire, but it must be fire from off the altar, or else if we minister with any other fire like Nadab and Abihu, or Nadab and Abihu, we may be slain before the Lord. So make sure your heart is set upon Christ and not upon some sinister intent. And then to close this sorry account of the unconverted zealot, he is generally only temporary in his zeal. If the zeal is good, even if it's directed in a good direction, it dies out before very long, says Spurgeon. The Apostle Paul says, It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. But that lukewarmness, that uh, flakiness, giving up, no, for a time, a zealot who is not a true believer may threaten to take the kingdom by storm. They censoriously rebuke the coldness of others. They vow to conquer hell and enter heaven, pushing the world before them and dragging the church after them. But in a short time, where are they? True zeal is sustained zeal. Now, Spurgeon says, remember that there's much about such a man to imitate him. Unconverted as he is, mischievous as his zeal may be, if we could pluck that sword out of his hand, of how great a use might it be to us? 
If sinners are zealous in their sins, should not saints be zealous for their God? If the things of time can stir the human passions, should not the realities of eternity have a greater and more tremendously moving force? If these men will spend and be spent, and stretch every nerve and run the race merely for the crown of politics or of ambition, where are we? What idlers, what laggards are we, that we pursue the things of God with but half a heart? So, if you see a zealous man but he's zealous for the wrong thing, at least you could learn from his zeal. And then, we ought to look upon these zealots with hopefulness. And here again, he's back with the point he's making about a zealous Simon as an unconverted man becoming a zealous Christian man. When someone serves Baal thoroughly, it's a great pity and a thing to be deplored, but I think he's a man worth catching and to be sought after. When you get a man who's vigorous in the cause of Satan, when sovereign grace brings him down, what a trophy he becomes of its power and how gloriously he contends for the gospel of Christ. So you've got Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the preacher. You've got John Bunyan, preeminent in godlessness until he's converted, at which point all that same energy, that same drive, that same appetite is now directed to a high and holy cause. So rather than looking at someone and saying, their case is hopeless, look how zealous they are for godlessness. No, we should be praying that sovereign grace may grip them and that a transformed heart may be as zealous as ever it was, but for godliness rather than godlessness. That brings us then to the true Christian zealot and asking the questions how his zeal manifests itself, that is, where you see it, how it's shown, uh, how it's demonstrated, then how it is kept up, and then what is to be said in commendation of it. How then does this zeal manifest itself now in the converted man? First of all, in his private dealings with God. The true zealot is a man who deals with God in private and not just before the face of men. The Christian zealot, when he is alone with God, throws his whole heart into his service. Whatever may be the grace which is in exercise, he seeks to have it thoroughly and actively at work. I wish you and I were more zealous, says Spurgeon. Alas, I have to complain of myself that when I try to pray, full often I cannot. When I would do good in the closet, that is, in the private place, evil is present with me. But, but at least there's the desire. The true Christian zealot seeks above all things to make his private religion intensely energetic, knowing that it is the vital point of godliness. So, my friend, are you zealous in private? Zealous in your private reading, zealous in your singing or praying when alone, zealous in your dealings with God. And therefore, particularly, a Christian zealot may be recognised very manifestly by his prayers. Hear his utterance in the prayer meeting. It's no repetition of a set of sacred phrases, no going over the metaphors which have become time-worn and tedious. The true zealot prays like a man who means it. He wrestles with God. Oh, we want more resolve when we go before God that we will have the blessing, says Spurgeon. More determination that seeing we are asking what is according to his mind, we will take no denial, but will say to the angel, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Christians, 
Seek to be zealots in prayer then, pouring out your hearts like water before the Lord and crying out with sighs and tears till like your master you have been heard in that which you have feared. But the zealot doesn't stop there. The Christian zealot is manifested, revealed, demonstrated in his jealousy for God's honour. And that word jealous is like uh, the word zealous in sound and sense. So Elijah, Elijah is taken up with a concern for the glory of God, zeal for the Lord of hosts, springing from an awful, overwhelming jealousy for God's honour and a hatred of the idols which usurped his throne. Or the example of Phineas, who when he saw the the wickedness, the adultery that was taking place in the worship of the Moabite gods, he seized a javelin and and plunged it through those who were so dishonouring the Lord. And so it said the zeal of Phineas made an atonement before the Lord. Now are we bothered by sin? Are we bothered by error? Out of the out, says Spurgeon, out on the softness which will not let some of my brothers denounce an error lest they should violate charity. Speak the truth, says Spurgeon. Call a spade a spade. It must be war to the knife for God and for his truth against the lie which in modern times has impudence enough to show its face again. I mean the lie that the sacrament can save, that baptism can regenerate, or that the Lord's Supper is a channel of salvation. And here Spurgeon is back on that uh, concern that's animating him through the course of this whole year, that there's this uh, sacramentalism, this puseyism, and we'll, we'll come back to that if you don't know what that means on another occasion, God willing. Up with grace then, and down with sacramentarianism, says Spurgeon. Up with the truth forever, and down with falsehood. A man is no zealot and cannot be called zelotes, unless he has a holy jealousy for the honour of Christ and his crown and his truth. And there's more. True zeal will show itself in the abundance of a man's labours and gifts. Paul commends the zeal of the Corinthians because they were always ready to minister to his needs. Spurgeon says when you're a zealous man, you'll, you'll, you'll use what you've got and you'll have much with which to do it. We want to be inexhaustible and permanent rivers of usefulness through the abundant springs from which our supply comes, even the spirit of the living God. And then, where's the anguish which a soul feels when his labours for Christ are not successful, the tears that channel his cheeks when sinners are not saved? Do not tell me of zeal that only moves the tongue or the foot or the hand, says the preacher. We must have a zeal which moves the whole heart. Here's something of Spurgeon's longing for conversion and therefore something of God's blessing upon his labours. How can I see souls damned, he says, without emotion? How can I hear Christ's name blasphemed without a shudder? How can I think of multitudes who prefer ruin to salvation without a pang? The heart must be heavy with grief and yet must beat high with holy ardour. The heart must be vehement in desire panting continually for God's glory, or else we shall never attain to anything like the zeal which God would have us know. And then it's going to show itself in a vehement love and attachment to the person of the Saviour. And this, says Spurgeon, is why we do not have more zeal, because often the Christ preached is not a personal Christ. He goes back to Napoleon again, the little corporal, and where he is there, his men 
throw themselves behind him in his courage and his commitment and his conviction. Where then are those who will follow Christ? What attachment can there be equal to that which binds a Christian to his Lord? What person can there be ever out of whose lips come such golden chains to bind all such hearts. When we see him, our hearts glow with sacred fervour. When we think upon him, our soul is all on fire. So there are no impossibilities, no even difficulties have ceased to be when Jesus Christ shall come and our hearts are full of love to him. It is a constant and unfailing sign then of a true zealot that his attachment to his master's person is deep and fervent and he cannot forget him who redeemed him by blood. Now, how do you you maintain such zeal then? What's the fuel that keeps that fire burning? Well, you need to understand first that zeal like this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and genuine zeal draws its life and vital force from the continued operations of the Holy Ghost in the soul. Only the living soul will be a zealous soul. And then out of that, I think Spurgeon has here, I'd say, four particular uh, truths or four particular realities that will uh, stir up and keep up your zeal. First of all, there's the ruin of sinners. Only think of the need there is for a sound, honest preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the doctrines which really do change the soul and the coming down of the Holy Spirit to deal personally with individuals. All wholesale conversion of tribes and nations by calling them Christians when they're merely civilised is an evil and an abomination. The wants of the age are enough, says Spurgeon. Only think of the need there is for a sound, honest preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the doctrines which really do change the soul, and the coming down of the Holy Spirit to deal personally with individuals. All wholesale conversion of tribes and nations by calling them Christians when they're merely civilised is an evil and an abomination. The wants of the age are enough, says Spurgeon, if a man has any sense of what eternal realities are to make us zealous, zealous to the highest pitch. So there's that outward look, the need of the age, the ruin of sinners. Then there's an inward look, there's a sense of gratitude, Look to the hole of the pit from which you were dug and you'll see abundant reason why you should spend and be spent for God. And here you get the sense of Spurgeon's running out of time a little bit. Zeal for God then looks forward as well. The thought of the eternal future. It thinks about heaven and it thinks about hell. And above all, zeal for God feeds itself on love to Christ. He Get to know, says Spurgeon, how Christ loved you and you cannot but love him. Do but know how he was spit upon and despised, how he bled and died for us, and we cannot but feel that we can do and bear all things for his name's sake. And then here's a preacher for you. Above all, second time round, here's a second priority. Christian zeal must be sustained by a vigorous inner life. If we let our inner life dwindle, if it begins to be dwarfish, if our heart beats slowly before God, we shall not know zeal. But if all be strong and vigorous within, then we cannot but feel a loving anxiety to see the kingdom of Christ come and his will done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And so Spurgeon closes by commending zeal. And he says, I'm not going to spend long on this, but I want you to feel the force of what I'm saying. It should commend itself to every Christian man if you remember that God himself is zealous. God is jealous for the glory of his own name. 
God is zealous in his grace as well as in his judgments. God, the, the scripture is our warrant, says Spurgeon, to say that God puts his hand to the work of saving the elect, being filled with zeal. And then Christ was zealous. The zeal of God's house had eaten him up. He was all zeal. Do you not know that I must be about my father's business is one of his utterances while he was still a child. And from the first to the last, it was his meat and his drink to do his father's will. Oh, at what a rate he drove. How swift the chariot wheels of duty went with him till the axles grew hot with speed. Look to God himself. Look to the God man, Jesus Christ. Does that not stir you up? And he says, I can only come down from there. What about the holy angels? Are they not called seraphs because they fly like flames of fire upon their master's errands? Be you not slow then, where angels are like flashes of lightning. If we're going to see any impact by the church upon the world, it must be by a zealous man, a zealous woman, a zealous congregation. Simon Zelotes must lead the van. The rest may follow in their place. Knowledge, patience, courage, prudence, every grace shall do exploits, but zeal shall bear the standard high. Zeal for God, zeal for his truth, this shall be in the van. And may you stand side by side with the most zealous in the day of conflict, that you may be there in the hour of victory. And Spurgeon, in preaching this way, feels his own lack of zeal. Oh, he says, for the zeal of Wesley and Whitfield, men always preaching or praying, who seemed as if they knew no weariness or shook it off as dust from their feet. Oh, the zeal of apostolic times, when the very least among you should be ready to be martyrs for Christ if need be. And now he's, he's pleading with them and he's pleading with himself and he's pleading with God. Oh, for more zeal in the church and church meetings and prayer meetings, that everything might be done with spirit. Above all, oh, for more zeal in the pulpit, holy fire come down. Spurgeon encourages them. It's not the extent of your knowledge, though that's useful. Not your talent or your tact, though these have their place. It is your zeal that shall perform the work of God. All those efforts are as nothing if there's no, no passion, no earnest desire, no utter commitment to the glory and honour of Jesus Christ. He says, don't let your zeal die out. Shall we ever forget Park Street? He's harking back now to the old church building. Those prayer meetings. When I felt compelled to let you go without a word from my lips because the Spirit of God was so awfully present that we felt bowed to the dust and any language of mine would have been a mere impertinence. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting like that? Oh, may God give us such occasions as those again. Spurgeon says, some of you never were zealous. You're the fathers of no spiritual children. Your religion gets into a very narrow compass and it's good for very little when it gets there. Oh, bestir yourselves. Lift yourselves up. If your religion is a lie, don't profess it. If it's a farce, don't be slaves to it. If there's anything in religion, it's worth everything. It cannot sit second at the table. It must have the first place. The Christian man is first of all the man who follows Jesus Christ. The first thing with the believer is his Lord. Christ will be nowhere if not first and chief. And religion is vain and void, which does not fill the soul and take up the throne of the heart. That's a, a stirring word. It cuts very deep into our hearts. Am I really 
a zealous Christian? Am I really a man who is taken up with God in Christ? Am I showing more and more of those fruits of the Spirit in which I give myself wholeheartedly to the things that belong to God? And Spurgeon closes with a reminder that you must be converted first. The sinner needs to remember that his first business is with this text. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then, believing, being baptised, you ought to go on being zealous for the Lord your God. I hope that's been a help to you. I hope it's stirred your soul, at least in some measure. God willing, we'll press on again next week. Uh, Sermon 640 to 646, 640 to 646. And our featured sermon will be 643, No Tears in Heaven. I hope you'll join with me again on that occasion. And until then, may God bless us and make us true zealots in the cause of our God and King, Jesus Christ.